Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Understanding our democracy, one podcast at a time. This is the show about politics. And history. Here's your host, Nate. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the show about politics. Today, we return to the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza for the second episode of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, shut this episode off immediately because it contains all sorts of spoilers. Okay, if you're ready for part two, then, let's return to the crime scene with our tour guide, Lindsay Richardson, to find out what happened just after JFK was shot. All right. This is going to take me a minute because there was a lot of stuff going sure. on. Okay, so shots were fired. People in Dealey Plaza dropped to the ground, um, depending on where they were. They weren't sure where the shots were coming from because Dealey Plaza is sunken a little bit and there's a lot of hard surfaces. So the sound is very difficult to pinpoint when you're outside. A lot of people said they heard shots coming from this building. There were a handful, not very many, of eyewitnesses who saw a rifle in the southeast corner window of the Texas School Book Depository very briefly at the moment the shots were fired. Other people closer to the underpass thought the shots were coming from behind the fence that protected the... In the grassy knoll. The grassy knoll area, you're right. When shots were fired, everyone in the plaza reacted. The people in the motorcade sped up and headed off to Parkland at top speed. Now, when you listen to the oral history of Clint Hill, who was the Secret Service agent who ran to the back of the limousine and climbed up to protect Jackie, he knew as soon as he was in that limousine that President Kennedy was not going to make it. People in the car knew that his injuries were mortal, but the rest of the world didn't know. There weren't easy digital communications at that time. So they race to Parkland, they're there within minutes, they go into the emergency room, they take the president into trauma room one, call in all the doctors, and spend the next half hour trying their best to save a man who no longer had his own heartbeat, his own breathing, or his own brain activity. They did their best because he's the president of the United States and you have to do your best. But at the same time, they called in a Catholic priest to perform the last rites. And at one o'clock, they gave a press conference announcing that the president had died. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become Uh, the 36th president of the United States. Meanwhile, police and investigators swarmed into Dealey Plaza looking for clues. Inside the Texas School Book Depository, a whole bunch of things were happening. So the Texas School Book Depository really occupied floors five, six, and seven of this building. Um, The lower floors were occupied by publishers and agents and things like that, but the whole building was really about school books and getting them out to schools. And so I see that over here in the assassination corner, we have a bunch of boxes of books. Was 
that everywhere at that time? Yes, come with me over here. Sure. Now, we've left a lot of the original pillars in this floor. And if you look around the sixth floor and imagine it as a dark, shadowy space full of boxes with a scarred up, messy wooden floor like this, half of the boxes on this floor were shoved off to one side because they were replacing the flooring. But immediately after the presidential limousine sped out of Dealey Plaza, Dallas law enforcement of all different agencies and stripes were in the building trying to figure out what had happened. But did they first check the grassy knoll? Some people ran up to the grassy knoll. Some people ran up that street or this street. Other people came in this building. When they came in this building, they had to figure out if anything had happened from this building or not. The first guy up here on the sixth floor was Luke Mooney. He gets up on this empty, dusty floor. It appears that there's nothing going on. There's just a bunch of boxes. But he looks at this arrangement of boxes as he comes to the southeast corner window. What do you see, Nate? I see that there's a stack of boxes, but there's one more box than the other. So that I'm pretty sure that that's a place where the sniper, whoever it was, could have rusted his gun for a clearer shot. This arrangement of boxes actually looks a little bit like a fort. And that was not how the rest of the boxes on this floor were arranged. So this fort immediately sort of made Mooney a little bit suspicious. When he went over there, and he had no idea what he was going to find, there could have been a man with a gun on the other side of those boxes. He's tippy-toeing over there. There's nobody there, but there are three spent shells from a rifle on the ground. And was that how many shots were heard? Depends on who you talk to. Some heard two, some heard three, some heard four or more. It's very difficult to get eyewitnesses to agree on what they heard in Dealey Plaza because again the bowl of sound makes it very difficult. So after the detectives found the three shells, what happened next? Okay, so he calls for backup. He's like, we've got rifle shells. This is a crime scene. We need to look at this. So they bring up more guys, and they fan out along the whole floor of the building, and they walk across it looking for all kinds of clues. And it's not until they are at the diagonal opposite corner of the building that they find a rifle stuck in between some boxes. I've got another question. Why wouldn't the people who worked at the book depository just do a roll call to see if anyone was missing. They did. Shortly after the assassination, they did a roll call, and the only person missing was an employee named Lee Harvey Oswald. He had been working for the company for about six weeks, and he was the only one who was not here after the assassination. There is a lot of speculation on exactly what Oswald did after being in the building. If you presume that he is the person at the window who fired the shots, he needs to have run diagonally across this building, hidden the rifle, run downstairs, and been casually getting a Coke from a vending machine on the second floor when a policeman runs in and says, have you seen anybody? What's going on? And he said, I'm getting a Coke. And so he runs up to investigate, and Oswald casually walks out of the building. He tries to catch a taxi and a bus, and I can't remember now which order that was in, but it, it was... He got frustrated by the traffic caused by the assassination. Eventually, he heads southwest to his home area of Oak Cliff, which is where he had a room in a rooming house. 
So he was over there. He was arrested less than two hours after the assassination, but it wasn't for the murder of President Kennedy. He was arrested for the murder of a Dallas police officer, J.D. Tippett. Um, According to evidence collected from eyewitnesses in Oak Cliff, Oswald had run into his room, collected a handgun and a jacket, come back out and was walking. Tippett saw him and just thought, well, he kind of looks like the description of the suspect. Stopped him, went around to talk to him, and Oswald shot him point blank. After shooting Tippett, Oswald ran to a nearby movie theater. There, people noticed him acting strange and called the police. When they arrived to arrest him, he pulled out his handgun. And according to police officer Nick McDonald, it was the webbing between his thumb and his index finger that came between the parts of the gun that would have fired. He got caught in that part of the handgun and that's what saved his life because it was point blank range and he would have been shot. So Oswald was- And also, that hurts. (laughs) Yes. I think it's probably a little better than being shot, but it wouldn't have felt good. You're right. (laughs) So they start processing physical evidence here. They do a roll call, realize an employee named Lee Harvey Oswald is missing. They arrest a guy named Oswald for shooting a police officer in Oak Cliff. They bring him in. They start looking at him and his background and identity. And all of a sudden, they can make a physical connection between Oswald and the rifle because they have gone to his house in Irving where his wife is living and found the mail order form that he used to get that rifle. So all of a sudden they've got a rifle that belongs to Oswald in a place where Oswald worked and they've arrested him for shooting a police officer and they charge him for shooting President Kennedy. That all happened on the first day. Dallas police resume questioning the man they have formally charged with the assassination of President Kennedy. The man is 24-year-old Lee Oswald, a spouser of leftist causes, an active member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, an avowed admirer of Russia and of Cuba's Fidel Castro, a man who once lived in Russia. Police say Oswald worked in the building from which the shots that killed the president were fired. So, what were Oswald's motives to kill the president? Right. Um, If you see the detective in that famous photo over there, the one in the light-colored suit and the light hat, his name is Jim Lavelle. And he was a detective with the Dallas Police Department for many, many, many years after the assassination. But at the time of the assassination, he was working... um, working the cases that weekend, Tippett and Kennedy. He was the one who was accompanying Oswald out of the Dallas Police Department basement because they were taking him to the county jail, which was a totally standard procedure. So he has said that when he talked to Oswald, he got the impression that Oswald didn't kill John F. Kennedy for being who he was. He killed the President of the United States because that's a big deal. But then... He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. Oswald was himself killed less than 48 hours after he was arrested. And he never had a chance to testify on his own behalf in court. So whatever Oswald's motivations might have been, there is no convincing record of them because he never had the chance to tell us. 
so many conspiracies popped up after Jack Ruby shot Oswald. Was there a cover-up? And who was really involved? These are just some of the questions that captivate the minds of many Americans to this day. This is so complicated. <laughs> um, my best effort is just going to be to tell you some of the different areas that have been investigated. I can't even go into all the different explanations in these areas because there are so many of them and they're based on such different interpretations of the same evidence or using other evidence that you know some other people either ignore or just discount. So you have ideas that Oswald um, was part of a conspiracy and that he played a role. He may not have been the main assassin. There may have been other people. There are conspiracy theories that Jack Ruby, who killed Oswald, was part of the conspiracy. And the fact that he shot Oswald was his job in the conspiracy to make sure that no further information leaked out. One of the problems with that is actually connecting Ruby with Oswald. Um, there's a whole New Orleans scenario with so many people from New Orleans. Um, Oswald had spent some time in New Orleans. There's a whole theory there. There was, in fact, the only major court case that tried someone for the assassination was held in New Orleans in the 60s. Um, they did not convict. Um, there are people who were sure that the Cuban government did it. This is ranging into Cold War territory, that it was the Russians, that it was the Cubans, that it was someone who was pro-communist and wanted to bring down America so that communism could spread all over the world. So it just goes on and on and on. Once you look at why a powerful person was killed, there are so many possible explanations um, that it becomes really difficult to rule everything out. Mm. So could there have been shots fired from the grassy knoll, like maybe fired by a handgun that you could have slipped into your coat and walked away with to distract them from catching um, Oswald? From catching there are all kinds of theories about what happened in Dealey Plaza, specifically in the area around the grassy knoll. I don't know of any proof of any of them. Um, there was a man along the side of the street, and I'm trying to see if one of our pictures shows him. I'm not sure it does on this panel. Um, but there was a man with an umbrella. That guy? No, he was further up, back oh. towards the building. Um, but the umbrella man was a was kind of an odd guy because he, this bright, sunny day, and he's standing on the side of the street with an open umbrella. And people thought afterwards, that's very suspicious, maybe he was there to give a signal that something was supposed to happen. And it turns out he was protesting Kennedy's father, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, who had been ambassador to England right before World War II. Mm -hmm. And the umbrella was a symbol of Prime Minister Chamberlain, who was someone who believed in appeasement, which meant going along with Hitler. And so Umbrella Man in Dealey Plaza had his umbrella up because he was trying to embarrass President Kennedy by reminding him that his dad had been an appeasement proponent. Okay. Yeah. So you come out with these weird stories that no one would ever know if there hadn't been a major tragedy in Dealey Plaza. No one would have asked this man why his umbrella was on, <laughs> except that he was caught on pictures and, and film, and so they wondered. Why, why would this man have his umbrella up? All right, that is much weirder than Nixon with a beard. <laughs> you haven't even touched the surface of how weird things get in this story. <laughs> I know. 
so many weird and strange things happened on that day. But really, if you put any day under a microscope, you'd probably notice all sorts of weird and unexplained events. But it can be dangerous to link those events together without evidence. We have to be skeptical. We have to think like scientists. Evidence is the key here. I base my opinions on physical evidence. This is forensic scientist Mike Hogg. If I wanted to throw a hypothesis out in the air that Martians zapped the president with a death ray and left no physical evidence, number one, that's not very scientific, but it doesn't require, that hypothesis does not require any physical evidence left over. Well, that's not reality. And that's the unfortunate part about many of the conspiracy theories is that they require no physical evidence or built into them as some sort of a caveat that negates physical evidence. Over on my other podcast, The Show About Science, Mike and I look at the evidence using modern-day science to better understand what happened to JFK. That episode is available right now for you to listen to. A very special thank you to Lindsay Richardson and Lori Ivey at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. These episodes wouldn't have been possible without all of their help. If you're ever in Dealey Plaza, make sure to visit the museum while you're there. Music on this episode was composed by David Feslian, and our theme song was written by Sounds Like an Earful. What do you think? Was there a conspiracy? Call our hotline at 872-215-1966, and you might end up on a future episode of the show. All right, bye everyone. See you on the next episode.